1: Rockheads, quit ogling your Nichelle Nichols poster and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 221, with guest Kate Gregory, recorded live Tuesday, February 27, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, bringing the Just-In-Time Team System class with Joel Semeniak, on-site to your development team, online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service, online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man with a newfound love for cough syrup, Carl Franklin.
2: Thank you very much. Welcome back. Welcome back to.NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin in New London,
0: Connecticut. My partner in crime out there, Richard Campbell. How you doing? I'm good. I'm home. After five days of adventuring around the wilds of Redmond. Yeah, the MVP summit was good to you, wasn't it? It was a lot of fun. It was huge for starters. Seventeen hundred MVPs came out. I, of course, stayed home. I was uh, sick, and we had some trouble at home I had to take care of. You were terribly responsible, but you were definitely missed. The well, number of times I had to answer the question, where's Carl? Yeah. Like, we're attached at the hip or something. <laughs> we couldn't be further apart, actually, it's the reality of it. Which is funny. Um, and, and folks are always surprised to find out, no, I really do live in Vancouver. Right, right. Vancouver, Connecticut. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, uh,
2: a couple of emails here before we get started. You bet. This one's from uh, Chris uh, Peachman. He says, hey, guys, in your latest show, Daryl Bassanjo mentioned the Virtual Earth SDK available from Windows Live. So I thought I would let you know that I'm working on a free open source ASP.NET Ajax Virtual Earth mapping control called PeachSoft.ve. That's pronounced like PeachSoft.ve but it's uh, spelled P-I-E-T-S-C-H-S-O-F-T. Very German, like Piech. soft. My Peachsoft VE control is an early alpha release currently, but I'm continuously working on adding more features. And my major goal of creating this server control is to abstract away the JavaScript that is required when implementing virtual earth mapping within an ASP. I'm beginning to sound like Rod Serling. You are. That's pretty <laughs> good. Let me do that last paragraph as Rod Serling. My major goal of creating this server control is to abstract away the JavaScript that is required when implementing virtual earth mapping within an ASP.NET 2.0 application. Not bad.
3: <laughs>
0: Not the bad. road
2: sign up ahead. and you entered uh, you can, the
0: CodePlex zone.
2: <laughs> the CodePlex zone, that's right. His software is at CodePlex.com slash
0: P-I-E-T-S-C-H soft V-E-3. And Richard, you Shrinksterized that? I got a Shrinkster for that. It's N1F. So go to Shrinkster.com, November 1, Foxtrot. You know, something weird happened with the emails this
2: last week. Uh, We got two emails where people were sort of a little bit critical of of some stuff they heard on the show, or us in particular. And then they recanted
0: after... Which, yeah, kind of surprised me. And. I appreciate the honesty. Uh, I, I was going to read one of them. I'll read James Greens because it's a great, it's a great email too. And for Tim Houlihan, thanks, man. Thanks for still listening to the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, appreciated the recant. Cause when I read your first one. I'm like, uh, we did that. Right. <laughs> but let's let that one go. Let me read you the one from James Green. Uh, okay. The first part. Uh, Carl, Richard, etc. I just got through listening to show 216 with Eric Sink. I know a little behind. It's, you know, a couple weeks later. Sorry that won't happen again. The show was a really interesting chat, and I suppose that is my flame. It was just an interesting chat. My confession, I'm a continuous integration nut, which, as you know, depends on healthy source code control practices. An interesting problem here, because I really wanted to talk to Eric Sink about the micro ISV thing. Mm. I thought that was very cool, and left... The fact that he's the center of the universe for a lot of source code stuff. Right. And so, continuous integration is a huge pocket of that. And I promise we got to talk about continuous integration. That's just a topic that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. As a matter of fact,
2: um, we, you know, Scott Hanselman did an interview with Jay Flowers on Hansel Minutes, and we're going one step further. Scott and Jay Flowers and I are going to do a DNR TV. We're recording it this week. And we're going to do DNR TV where you're going to get to see the continuous integration with uh, DOS Blog, actually. Beautiful. It's going to
0: be fabulous. And very real world. I mean, that's literally uh, oh. what those guys are doing. Couldn't get more real world. No. And and I think the issue James had here is he figured, Eric Sink, we're going to talk about uh, continuous integration, and we didn't. Yeah. And he goes on to say, there are still folks who, and I can say this because I know one, don't even use VSS. Yeah. That fact is useful, however, mainly for shutting up people who bitch and moan about VSS. Because the best... Visual source safe. Yeah, the best feature of visual source safe... There is no best feature of visual (laughs) safe. (laughs) It's better than nothing, but only just. That's the best thing you can say about it. It isn't actually nothing. Yeah. And then there are the designers versus developer source code control thing. When your code is in a VSS vault, whatever, and the designer is using version Q or some kind of weird repository, that sucked in classic ASP days, sucks less in .NET, but may suck again until some best practices emerge around using WPF in Teams. Mm. And I'm looking to the, this is my commentary, I'm expecting expression to address this issue. Yeah. That's really what it's about is the integration of designer between the developer. Yep. But maybe that wasn't this show. So no worries. The sun will rise tomorrow. But if the topic comes up again. Yeah. And now to pay back a little for future guest ideas, Gian Paolo and Fred from the AST team who just dropped the Litware HR sample on CodePlex. Huh. And that code sample is at shrinkster.com slash N1G. Very good. There are some RCAS vids out, but th- it's time they put down the whiteboard and started to share some of all the, from the trenches. Now, this is a great compound. WCF, SQL t- 2K5, Model View Presenter, Single Instance, Multi-Tenant, Nuts and Bolts. Dow! Ouch! <laughs> Hit me one time. <laughs> this sample has it all. Software as a Service has been rocking my world of late, and it's about the hottest guidance of the topic to date. Cool. Anyway, thanks again for all the great shows. Kind regards, James Green. We're definitely going to have to check that out. I'm hunting these guys down and sticking them on the show, and that's all there is to that. That's all there is to it. And he's from Sydney, Australia. Now, I don't know about you, but I love this email. I mean, it was a great email. It was critical. It, we missed an opportunity, knew two ways about it. Right. But then four days later, I get another email from him. <laughs> and by the way, the subject of the email, .net rocks zero, missed opportunity one. Right, right. It was a little snarky. There you go. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> Not that we don't appreciate the we snarkiness. I mean, we love it's it. It's all good. If feedback is feedback, and and I need it, you know, it works for me.
2: Especially if it's done in a creative, flary way, you know, with a flair.
0: That's the thing is, you didn't just say you suck, go away. He right. said you missed this opportunity, yeah. and here's another opportunity as well. Like, what more could you ask for in a listener? Uh, so, follow up email, gentlemen. I have just caught up with show two seventeen. That was Paul Randall's show. And may I make the humble and unreserved retraction of any statement to the effect that any shark jumping has occurred. <laughs> a whole show on check DB. Bravo. Yeah. Kind regards, James. And of course, the shark jumping, I get a good laugh out of people don't know about this anymore. I actually saw it on television yesterday. Yeah. It's all jumping over. It's Fonzie jumping over the shark tank. Happy days. Yeah, that whole meme around once they did that show, the show basically failed. It was canceled a year later. Right. And so every now they, all the writers and people in that space talk about, D- has your show jumped the shark tank? <laughs> yeah, it's <And that's> the, <laughs> the last hurrah. And my daughter's watching a cartoon last night, and the there's a conversation between two characters, and one of them says, and what about that water skiing over the shark tank incident? And the other character hangs up. And I start <laughs> laughing, and she looks at me like, why is that funny? And I'm like, the writer pulled a gag that I know you're not going to get. Yeah. So, classic. Anyway, thanks again, James. Great story. I really appreciate your emails. Yep. So, uh, and just to, now for the employment
2: opportunity section of .NET Rocks. <laughs> this is getting crazy. Um, if you're a hotshot developer and you want to work in New York City, and you want to uh, have the company pay for your apartment for a year and uh, do the New York City tour with uh, Greg Brill down at Infusion. Go to shrinkster.com slash KH6 for the full details on that. A bunch of people from uh, our listener base and even some gurus that we know have uh, have gone down there to work and it's good stuff. And we, you know, we went down there, we saw their facility. Uh, Greg's a great guy. Nick Landry works there. It's good stuff, folks. And the other thing is an opportunity for ASP.net gurus in Washington, D.C. If you're located near or willing to be relocated to Washington, D.C., check that out, shrinkster.com slash MMJ.
0: And uh, that's all we'll say about that. We should talk about a couple of conferences. Obviously, the big one coming up is Mix o seven. Mix o seven, and you're right. We uh, we we
2: have confirmed that there is going to be a major announcement at Mix o seven.
0: Absolutely, yeah. and we've got a nice little tie in with that now, don't we? Yeah, we do. So we'll leave that lie. You'll see it come soon enough. That's all we're saying. That's all we're saying. So the website visitmix dot com. April thirtieth to May second at the Venetian in Las Vegas. The seventy two hour conversation. Yeah. Very exciting. On the other side, or actually sort of in the middle, the West Michigan Day of .NET 2007. All right. At uh, shrinkster.com N1H. Very good. And that show is May 19th. Hey, it's my uh, anniversary. May 19th, your anniversary. And no, we're not going to be able to be there because we're booked into other things. That's right. And it's at the Davenport University in Grand Rapids. All right, and finally, there's us, right? We are going to be at a show this weekend coming up. That's right, the Orlando Code Camp at OrlandoCodeCamp.com, dot com because we owed Orlando a show, right? From the road trip, we That's never right. got down there. Yep, I'm doing the keynote at the
2: at the event. Uh, it's going to be uh, sort of a. Oh, I don't know. A nostalgic look back on my career as a VB developer. Goodness knows
0: you'd go back to the very beginning of VB. with some good stories in there. I actually had a guy ask me at the MVP Summit, so where is Gary anyway? Yeah, I know. It's (laughs) strange. I said, I don't know. They call you Gary. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey it's Coffee carl and here. Gary <laughs> <laughs> and then of course we're going on from there to dev connections yeah and at dev connections
2: we're doing a uh a, a live .NET rock session with scott guthrie mr guthrie mr guthrie so really it's always good to that. have him uh in front of an audience you know uh fielding questions and talking about What people are interested in, of course. He's got a lot to talk about these days. Well, you're talking
0: about one of the guys at the center of the creation of ASP.net.
2: Yeah, and and of course Orcus coming up, he always likes to uh, drop
0: some hints about what's... Where things are going. Where things are going. I'm just surprised at how... He's very senior in the organization these days, and yet very approachable. He doesn't have that a little, you know, surrounded by people kind of executive glow to him. No, just you're right. He's a guy who builds code and cares what people think about how it works. And he
2: really goes out of his way to make sure all questions are answered. He's a wonderful person. M-
0: amazing. And uh, I really look forward to that because I think with an audience, we're going to get some great questions yep. to drill into ASP.net.
2: And hey, what the heck? You know, if you're listening and uh, you have a question you want us to ask him. Send it to us. Irocksatfranklin's Franklin's net. Also, we're going to be doing the closing ceremony. There, we'll be doing our famous the sixty four bit question quiz show to give away some swag. So, for anybody who's going to be at uh, Dev Connections, make sure you come to the closing ceremony. Right. All right, Richard. It's time to get Kate on the line. Kate Gregory helped to develop the material for the Vista Ascend course for independent software vendors. Uh, She wrote the Hands-On Labs, currently being used by Microsoft to teach programming for UAC, uh, user access control, and is developing a large C++ Vista reference application. She's spoken on Vista topics on three continents. She's also a regional director and a former .NET Rocks alumnus. Hi, Kate. How are you?
4: I'm good. Good to hear from you.
2: Uh, is your caffeine converter still kicking out
0: code?
4: I am still converting caffeine into code, absolutely.
0: That's good. That's my first question to you. <laughs> <laughs> so you still haven't gotten over this C++ thing, huh?
4: Yeah, you know, and, and if you hang on long enough, everything comes back again, and, and in a lot of ways, C++ is coming back again for Vista programming.
0: I, well, I can see you working on all this UAC-related stuff, which seems to be a real area of love these days in the Vista world. <laughs> <laughs> love.
4: Yeah, some folks are not feeling it. Um, uh, they don't feel very protected, and uh, that's a shame.
0: Yeah, how many times can you click the OK button?
4: Well, you know, and, and there can be a delay, too, depending on how big the executable is, um, where the whole screen is black and you're just kind of waiting. Um, and, and the frustration is, is uh, ironically highest when your machine is new to you, and uh, that's when you're first telling everyone your impressions, So for the first week or so, you're like, man, I hate this Vista thing. I keep having to say okay to stuff that I just asked to do. And probably if you could come back to those people two months later and ask them, they'd be, oh, yeah, that hardly ever happens anymore. Uh, But by that time, they've already told their neighbors what they think. So Um,
0: So it's really about Vista learning about what you're willing to do.
4: Well, you know, the theory is supposed to be that – you are okay with saying okay to what you just said because you know you just said it. And if the dialogue ever comes up when you didn't just say, you'll click cancel. Um, but early on in your, your acquisition process and your installation process, you're doing a lot of changes that require a lot of consent, and, uh, and people are frustrated because they say, but I just I consented that same thing five minutes ago, and then I closed it when I shouldn't have, and I bring it up, and I have to consent again, and it's annoying. Um, and you, you learn some tricks. And some habits. So, for example, if I am editing the registry and I get reg Edit up, I leave it up, right? So, I consent once when I bring it up and not every single time that I launch it.
0: Right. I, I noticed I'm just reconfiguring a new laptop and I automatically had the reflex this time to run all the setups as administrator. Yeah. And i and that's a new reflex. I didn't have that a month ago. While
3: you right. guys
2: were talking, I just came up with a new definition of the acronym for UAC. It's upset
0: and cranky. (laughs) Which is what I think a lot of people are who, who use it. Right. And I've heard the definition of UAC really focused on your programs are misbehaving.
4: We have all spent a very long time writing apps that will only work if you're an administrator.
0: Yeah, and, and running them too,
3: not just... And
4: therefore, everyone's an administrator. Um, I, w- I was at a client yesterday that I can't name who were brought to their knees all over the weekend by a terrible virus, which was certainly aggravated by the fact that every one of their developers is a domain administrator. And...
0: So they were the best propagators of the virus you could think of.
4: Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, why do they have all those, those, those powers? Because they're trying to run various apps that don't run well as standard user. And so they write apps, that don't run a standard user, and they don't find out until they're shipping them that, oh, yeah, you got to be an admin to run this app. And the workaround, because we're right at deadline, is to make all the users admins. And so you've got, you know, 30,000 desktops, and they're all admins, and, and some of them are, are uber admins.
2: You know, it's sort of a vicious cycle, though, and you can't really blame the developers because, you know, they, they can't get anything done if they're not admins. Right. I mean it and sort of just says a lot about the way Windows was architected in the in the first place.
4: In the first place. And so a couple of years ago this sort of church of standard users started to rise up, you know, with with I went to more than one technical thing where the coffee time was, you know, dominated by some guy standing there telling us why we should all run as standard users all the time.
2: Yeah, it's just not practical.
4: It just wasn't practical. We all we all said, "Yeah, you're probably right," and continued to run as admin, right?
0: Yeah, I I love that idea, except for the part where I have to get work done. (laughs) Well, I like to tell the story that
2: I installed Trillion for my daughter because she had friends that used Yahoo and AOL and MSN. So I installed it, and it was at the time when I was trying to have her run as a user. Turns out you can't add a buddy to Trillion unless you're running as administrator. Come on. My
4: My favorite story, the calculator. You know the view standard versus view scientific?
0: No. H A L M. (laughs) Because it writes it to the registry.
4: Yeah. In local (laughs) machine, which you have to be, you know, have superpowers to write to. It's not for (laughs) you. Oh
0: my God.
4: But you know, think about it. When was calculator written? Like 1902 or something, right? Right. I mean, it was a different life then. And and so in the face of all these apps that will only run if you're an administrator and all these people who respond by being an administrator and who therefore reflexively continue to write stuff that only works if you're an administrator, somebody had to cut the Gordian knot. Mm. And that's really what UAC is. Yeah. Right? It says, I don't care what you typed in the box when you signed on to this machine. You ain't an administrator unless you're deliberately and expressively want to use your mojo.
2: Now, what do you, what you mean by that is unless you want to turn UAC off? Is that what you're no, saying?
4: No, when UAC is on, and I, for example, type regedit in, in my you know start run, um, it's like, are you sure? Because that's like a deeply powerful program that messes with the registry, and you're going to have to assert your administrator powers to use it. I see. And I say, yep, I want to assert my administrator powers.
0: Now, you don't get that option unless you had those powers to assert.
4: If I don't have them, I can call the administrator over to type an ID and password. Right. Or if I was one of the three people on the planet who actually had two different Windows accounts, the administrator one and the regular one, that's what we were supposed to do? Yes. <laughs> uh, I could then type my known administrator ID and password. Or the other place they they, they keeps talking about it a lot in demos is you could call your mum over, right? So if you're the kid and you've gone to the website and it wants to install some game on your machine... You could call a parent over who would uh, consent or not to the install. Right,
0: which, is, I mean, my house is set up that way, and you, you, my both my daughters actually IM me to say, can you install this for me? And then I remotely administer their machines to do it. But <laughs> that's just because we're big, fat geeks around here.
4: My kids do IM me, but I rarely remote desktop to their desktops to take care of what they want.
0: Yeah, from the next room, Richard. That, yeah. Well, we've actually <laughs> negotiated dinner for in a four way IM between two <laughs> floors, so there's there's no saving us.
4: <laughs> I thought it was pretty geeky when I helped my daughter cook dinner from three thousand miles away over instant messenger. Why well, nice. should I turn it down?
0: I've done that with uh, with the older daughter cooking pancakes.
3: Oh God. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um.
2: So, what do you think about UAC in terms of people's reaction to it? Uh, uh, I mean, obviously, everybody hates it in the press, but, do, you know, when it comes to doing real work, are they using it or are they turning it off?
4: I really hope they're not turning it off. I think that, the, first of all, we probably have to divide the world into sort of regular users and power users. And, and power users are going to be more annoyed by it because they, they are used to being able to do whatever the heck they want, when they want, without pausing
2: and they're used to not opening html attachments and email
3: too
4: right they've got some some self-control they they actually don't believe that a random stranger loves them um and so but they're going to find some ways around it you know like uh, i do really well with an elevated command prompt so you launch one command prompt as administrator consent once and then everything you launch from that command prompt will be elevated without any prompting
2: right so you just have to get used to you know, typing in or, or making batch redirections to the applications that you uh,
3: want to run. Right.
4: So if you want to edit some file that's protected and, and you want to edit it with Notepad, well, you go to your elevated command prompt, you type Notepad, now you're the proud owner of an elevated Notepad that you didn't have to consent to get.
0: No ordinary Notepad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like
4: Super N++ notepad. right there. Um, yeah. and, and then you can do what you like, and it can save to places that are protected that, that um, ordinary processes can't save to, like program file. Um. And if you're geeky enough that you think you need to write to, you know, HK local machine in the registry or or to something under program files and you know what you're doing and it's okay for you to break the rules, then you should be okay with opening up a command prompt uh, to launch your apps from and, and you know how to spell notepad and regedit.
2: So you still run as an administrator but you have UAC on and yeah. you launch a command prompt, you say yes once yeah. and then everything else comes out of
4: that command prompt. Right, but then if in the meantime I do open an email with an attachment and I run the EXE and the EXE tries to do something like install something.
2: Yeah, you'll still get the prompt.
4: I'll get the prompt and I'll be like, whoa, what? where's that coming from? I was just reading email and I'll say no. And, you know, whatever wicked thing the installer wanted to do won't happen. And that's the promise of you.
2: Why not have this kind of functionality with a command line to everything that you start with a with a double click? You know, why, why can't... Why doesn't it work that way?
4: I think that the annoyance factor was underestimated in the design. That's all I can imagine. That I,
0: I got to think that each guy looked at his piece and how it responded to UAC and didn't realize how many we were going to hit when we had all the pieces together. You
2: know, I remember complaining about this long ago and saying, you guys better get this right. I mean, people were annoyed about this long before UAC. You know, it's just un- unbelievable to me that they didn't nail it.
4: Now, some of the other things you get with UAC are really kind of slick and invisible, and one of the ones I really like is virtualization, which some Microsoft documents call redirection, because I guess virtual is heavily overloaded, um, where if your code tries to write to program files, it's not allowed to because it's running a standard user. It, Vista will just say, oh, program files, you say, here you go, and, and uh, open up a file on, under the per-user store, under program files, so it's not c program files something or another it's c documents blah blah username bunch of complicated stuff program files and the program can cheerfully write there and read there and thinks it's writing to the real c program file
2: oh wait a second whoa so are you saying if i write some code with a hard-coded path to program files i'm actually not right reading and writing to that place that i'm actually think i am right oh that's not good (laughs)
4: <laughs> well, I it don't know, I think it's pretty after clever by multiple users, right? it, is,
0: it is clever, but it's, you know But the alternative was failing the program This is about keeping apps working I suppose right. it's true and Instead I, of I,
4: blowing up, it writes to a per-user store Now, if this is a genuinely administrative behavior And what Steve says is supposed to be available for Sally Then yeah, this sucks Because they're each working in their own individual store Yeah,
2: I guess, I guess if you're reliant on the file system And you want to go there and see the file And it's not there, you're
0: confused That could be a problem, but I... I yep. suppose a file handle is a file handle, right? Yeah, Microsoft picked the f- the fewer breaks there. The number of people who genuinely want to do that globally is low. Yeah, you're right. You're right.
4: Because a lot of times, all it is 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 the developer can't be bothered to think of a of a folder that's likely to exist. So he picks, you know, the root of C, which is specially protected. Yeah. Or. The current directory, which is somewhere under program files because that's where the exe is, right? Right. Um, and it, all he really means is a place to write some stuff for next time. Right. And so the, re- the virtualization, you know, gives him that capability transparently.
2: And, you know, um, one thing that I've noticed, and you probably have too, when you're doing a click once application... Mm -hmm. Don't ever use the current directory because you'll (laughs) never find it. (laughs) It That program is not on the computer. Where did that go? It is so well hidden. You forget about giving anybody, oh, where is that file again? Oh, hang on a second. It's in, you know. Yeah.
4: So, yeah, yeah, use it
2: under my documents or something.
4: And so basically, yeah, it's a good, it is a good moral. Don't ever use the current directory. There's been environment variables yeah. available for you for, like, you know, user data and app data and temp and things like that forever in a day. Right. And, and those are what you should be using.
0: And all we're really seeing here is the gradual enforcement of what we've been told to do for years.
4: Right. So best mm-hmm. practices are starting to become the only practice you can do without getting an error message.
0: Without getting spanked. It's a very good point.
4: And if you were a best practices kind of person all along, you may shrug and say, what's the big deal? Who writes the program files? But lots and lots of people write to program files.
2: I'd like to mention that uh, this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, Telerik R-A-D Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET applications. And you can find them online at www.telerik.com. I wish there was a way that I could say that uh, you know everything that I launch is elevated you know <laughs> not <Isn't that laughs> just right. turning off UAC Yeah because it all comes down to I mean things that I have intent to do something about I I click on so that's where the process starts if I started the process it should be elevated but if something else wants to do something within that process then then uh, then I want to be notified it's just, you know, the, I wish we had that kind of fine-grained control. Do we? Am I wrong? Well,
4: really, I mean, you can say when you're launching the process, please launch this elevated. And then everything it launches is elevated from then on. There's no dropping down. And there's no auto-elevation. Like, if your code tries to write to a bad place, and if you were an administrator, it would be allowed, your code doesn't auto-detect and try to elevate. It just it just craps. Because no, I
2: know. I know. And, and I'm not particularly happy about everything that what I launched, you know, launching Elevated. I'm not particularly happy about that. But, you know, taking your uh, command window idea and just instead of having to type Notepad in the command window, just go to Notepad and run it. I mean, everything that I run, I want to run Elevated. The things that it runs, well, I'd like to enforce, you know, with UAC.
4: Somebody floated something by me a couple days ago about uh, launching Explorer itself elevated, but I, I don't know of how that would work or if I would dare to try it.
2: Yeah, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't, you can
4: kill and relaunch Explorer, right? So you could try it, but um, I still don't know if that would only take care of, you know, you double clicking file names on, on in an Explorer windows or whether it would also make background things. And now, what is,
2: what is IE seven protected mode? Is that different from being elevated? Yeah,
4: that's, Still different from UAC, again, it's some sort of sandboxing of m- multiple levels of sandboxing of IE7 um, mm. to the extent that you can't, if you're on a page of protection level X and you click a link to something at protection level Y, it has to open in a new window so that you understand it's at a different protection level. Okay. Um, so, for example, a long, long time ago when the Earth was green, before there were such things as the favorites menu... I had a file of HTML somewhere on my machine, and it was a bunch of links, and it was my favorites, and I set it as my home page and then I'd click a link and go to it. Well, now I really have to give up on that in Vista because I'm on a page that's located on my own hard drive and is therefore ultimately trusted. And I click, you know, something like www.live.com to go to a search. I was like, well, changing zones need to be in a new window. Pops up a dialog to get me to say okay to being in a new window. Pops up a new Explorer. It's like about 11 clicks, it seems like, to get what I want, and I'm thinking, all right, it's time to completely integrate the the favorites menu into my life and abandon this file of HTML on the desktop. Um, But the theory is that you don't mind running active content off, say, a CD that you physically put into your machine that's launching something in Explorer, but you do mind maybe running that very same active content from a random Internet site.
0: So you wrote about – I'm reading this article where you're quoted from uh, Mary J. Foley, and you talked about how C++ is better for working with UAC, <laughs> which I detect a teeny tiny bit of bias. I'll just kind of throw that well, out there. L- let
4: me tell you, one, one of the things you got to do for UAC is you have to have a manifest in right. your application.
0: First of all, we should give the
2: URL, I'll shrinksterize it at slash MFO.
4: Good. Um, so, a manifest is a is a hunk of XML that says this application does administrative things and and must run as administrator. And when you launch that app, you'll get the immediate consent prompt, and uh, then you'll be using your administrator powers, and it can run amok all over your machine. And right. uh, your manifest might say uh, don't elevate no matter what, or it might say if the person can elevate, then do that kind of thing. So. The file of XML is, you know, you create it in Notepad, or more realistically, you copy it from somewhere else because there's only about two words in it that change from application to application.
0: Uh, And there's only five people (laughs) who actually understand how to build them from scratch.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Put the name of your application here. Put the elevation level here. Don't touch anything else. Right. Um, Mm.
0: That's a manifest.
4: That's a manifest. (laughs) All manifests are like that, like no breathing on them, or you'll be sorry. (laughs) So in C++, the way to... To do this is you add a new file to your system, XML, put the XML in it, and then you go into your linker options, you find the tab called Manifest Tool, and you say Additional Input, and you put the name of this file, and you're done. Now in C Sharp, you tell me if this is harder or not. First, you put the manifest in your project. Then you add a .rc file to your project. Then you edit the .rc file using a slightly different editor than usual so that you can hard code in 21 this, 2 that, and so on. Then you have to just memorize the numbers. And then you close that, and then you unload your project by right-clicking and choosing Unload Project, which you've probably never done. And then you right-click that and say Edit, and then you're like hex-editing your XML file kind of deal. And you type in a special little piece of XML that you have to memorize, and you'll get Wiggly saying it's wrong, but it's okay, it's not wrong. <laughs> and then you save that, and then you reload the project, and then you build it, and then you get a manifest. Now, I could be biased, but I kind of think the C++ way is easier. Hmm. <laughs> and, well, and I don't even know how you do it in VB.
0: Hmm.
4: Because you have to put build steps in. No it's comment.
0: All right, I'm intimidated. Okay, no yeah. comment. <laughs> I'm okay. It's a simple 21-step I
3: mean, She made step me procedure. afraid.
2: She's badass, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> don't mess with me. Well,
4: <laughs> so I'm finding it easier in the C++ world, you know, to put manif- – you can do it. And once you've gone through that particular delight once, you don't have to do it every time. Um, you've got the project referring to the RC file and the RC file referring to the manifest and the post-build step compiling the RC file with the special SDK version of RC and away you go. But it's still reasonably weird. And I'm, I'm sure that future versions of all the tools will be much better about manifest inclusion.
0: Yeah, I think we just needed – Studio 2005 was cast before Vista UAC was, yes. so we're going to have to get a fix for that at some point.
4: Absolutely. And there, there is uh, an update for, for Visual Studio for Vista, which which covers some of these things. But, I mean, we're looking for library updates as well coming coming forward to do things like, um, by tradition, menus and buttons that will trigger a consent prompt should have the little shield on them. Right. And the way that you do that today is you send a message to the button to tell it that it should have a shield on it. And so if you're in VB or C Sharp, you're going to use PInvoke to the send message SDK function to send that message, which is uh, kind of a blast from the past for a lot of us.
0: Yeah, you're getting back into this whole conversation that you had with Mary Jo about managed versus uh, mixing managed and unmanaged code. Yes. Because you really don't have a choice if you're going to do this stuff properly.
4: Right now, if you want to use the products that are released today to do Vista programming, you're going to have to remember, you know, the Win32 SDK and and the stuff that's native code.
0: But you've been Mm -hmm. writing about managed and unmanaged and, and native mixed together for years.
4: Yep. Wow, Absolutely. no wonder you
0: feel so popular. You just <laughs> happen right, to be sitting in like, Is there
4: in the- anyone left who remembers how to do any of this
0: stuff? <laughs> You're like the last guy who knows how to build a steam train. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's like, gee, we need a steam train. Who should we call? <laughs>
4: That's exactly how I feel. Yep. There's 7,000 new thingies in Vista.
0: New thingies? APIs, uh, messages, is that a C. technical term? <laughs> Yeah, I always knew it was things I was missing out of C++. <laughs> uh,
3: the thingy that that library. it have
0: IntelliSense, that's
2: what I want to know. Uh,
4: it, okay, C++ allegedly has IntelliSense. It has IntelliSense whenever you first start Visual Studio. It just doesn't always have it for the entire duration of your Visual Studio session.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> it's, it's designed to be there. It just sometimes puts its hands in the air, has a snit, and goes for coffee without you.
2: Hmm. So, I mean, all things considered, do you still think C++ is a better application development environment than C Sharp?
4: Well, well, first of all, it hugely depends what the app is, okay? Right. Um, If you want to build like a WinForms app and you know C++ and you somehow haven't managed to learn any C Sharp, which I find kind of hard to believe, you could write your UI in C++. Yeah. And, and it wouldn't hurt you, and it wouldn't it wouldn't be bad or, or stupid or wrong. But it wouldn't be smart or wonderful or make things easier either, right? Um, where C++ makes things smart, easy, and wonderful is in the business layer, in the back half of the app,
0: hmm.
4: where you want to maybe call some old code that's still in native code that you don't feel like porting.
0: Yeah, Interop, you
2: have much more fine-grained control, do you?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful Interop. Or where you want to write some lightning performance, Because you can maybe use something like templates. The templates and generics, they solve the same business problem, but generics solve them at runtime and templates solve them at compile time. Yeah. The templates always run faster than generics. They they don't have to spend any time doing runtime type identification. So, of course, they're quicker. And, of Um, course, we don't
2: have to say if you're doing any kind of uh, data processing or, you know, iteration or math uh, things. Yeah.
4: And uh, the optimizer today in C++ is ahead of the optimizer in VB and C Sharp. Yeah. I and mean, there are parts that are, that are shared, but the C++ optimizer will optimize your intermediate language. We'll do the same sort of stuff about, you know, loop unrolling and that kind of stuff that you would expect in native code.
2: For C Sharp developers who've never done C++, <laughs> maybe they've done Java. Yeah. Um, give us some, uh, you know, sexy stuff that might entice us to check it out.
4: Well... I think templates, although they're scary, they, they carry the carrot of huge performance improvement. Yeah. Um, and if you understand generics, then then you can understand templates. It's not it's not a conceptual shift. It's just the mechanics of of, uh, of how they work. In fact, what you type and where the angle brackets go are pretty much the same. Yeah. Um, I also really like deterministic destruction, um, which is an an old old concept in C plus plus exists in VB and C sharp with keywords and exists in exactly the same form in C++ without keywords. Hmm. So I, I, in C, C Sharp and VB, I can say using you know foo equals new something or another that needs to be cleaned up. Hmm. Go through a whole block of whatever I need to do, get to the end of the block, get to the end of the using, and the dispose will get called for me automatically. Yeah. In C++, um, we have two different ways of creating an instance of an object. We can say foo pointer or handle, depending on what where which kind of object it is, equals new, or GC new if it's a garbage collected object, type. And that puts it on the heap and gives us a pointer, which is the only behavior you get in C-sharp and VB, but they do it without the punctuation. Mm-hmm. But I can also say foo F. And then we say that F is on the stack. And then he has that same automatic scope. When we get to the end of whatever scope he was declared in, he evaporates. His destructor is called mm-hmm. And what the team did for C++ CLI, which is what's in 2005, is they created a two-way mapping between C++ destructors and .NET dispose. Oh. So if an object like, say, you know, a SQL data connection, which doesn't have a destructor because it wasn't written in C++, but it has a dispose, I write a C++ program, which I make a connection on the stack, hit the brace bracket, he goes out of scope, his dispose is called. Wow. Or I write a C plus C++ program, which I write a class that has a destructor, compile that as a as a .NET object, and now he implements Dispose, And I didn't have to write any code. I just wrote a destructor. And all that if, Boolean, blah, blah thing that you have to do when you write a disposed properly, the compiler does for you.
2: So here's an interesting problem. I have a friend here who develops the back end for the local newspaper website, theday.com. And they keep... Um, about two weeks' worth of stories in a data set in memory every day. and every Yeah. So searching and pulling up content comes right out of memory. So it's very fast. Uh, Every day at, you know, some like 4 in the morning or whatever, they have to get rid of that thing and load up a a new data set. And with the uh, non-deterministic aspects of C Sharp that they're using, you know, the garbage collector may or may not kick in depending on whether there's no pressure on it. So this might be, as you say, C++ is great on the back end. This might be a situation where, you know, the object uh, itself that has that data set could be written in C++ so that you could flip a switch and just get rid of the whole thing immediately, de- uh, deterministically.
4: Well, is that yeah, what you it's, it's, it's the same as calling dispose. It's the same under the covers as calling dispose, except that you can't forget
2: well yeah, and dispose doesn't doesn't necessarily get rid of everything right there, does it? It just marks no, it. No, it
4: doesn't free memory. Uh, dispose yeah. is good for non-memory things like connections which you want to put back in the pool. Yeah. Or or file handles that you want to release or sync objects or something like that. Right.
2: So and, so what now right now what they're doing is they dispose it and they do a GC collect. You know, which we've been told you should be careful about doing that.
4: Apparently a good rule of thumb is anytime you think you're going to make things better by collecting yourself you probably are making it worse
0: yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) so do it whenever you don't think you need to yeah but whenever you think you need to don't do it well
4: because i guess collecting is reasonably slow and so you're not really going to improve performance by collecting more often than you think you need to well they need
2: to do it once a day and it needs to update now i think they've figured out a good way to do it but i'm you know i'm just Uh, you know, for somebody who is designing a system that's going to have a major blob of memory that needs to get recycled every day, you know, is it it a good idea to think about C++ for that object?
4: Um, It depends how much the fact that this is a data set really matters to them. You know, if it it really needs to be officially a data set, then it's going to be managed memory, and you're going to have to trust um, the the garbage collector to deal with it.
2: Because it doesn't have a destructor, it's not written in C++, there's no way to... Just to deterministically to clear, just up, kill to it. clear
4: up the memory of it. No, right. Um, but then it sounds like they're trying to out sequel sequel, right? Like I'm going to take two weeks worth and hold it in memory, and, and yeah, I'm exactly. After, but couldn't sequel just have cached that and gotten it back to you pretty quickly anyway?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. As a guy who's living and breathing caching these days, the, you know the closer you are to the metal, the better off you are. Right. So going back to SQL to get the, ca- the to hope it's cached is nowhere near as efficient as keeping it cached locally on the web server, especially when you get into web server farms.
2: And it's all read-only data, too. It's not like it's going to update and, it, you know, it gets read once a day and then it just gets read and read and read and read.
4: And you can make your own indexes and, and whatnot into it. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Well, anyway, that's what they did. But, yeah, certainly for everything that's, pure memory and memory only, if you write the whole thing in C++ as native, then you're in charge. And, and really, C++ is the language for people who insist on being in charge.
2: You know? But now you're yeah. talking about constructs like uh, uh, collections and whatnot that are native, that aren't .NET collections, right? I mean, you basically have to write your own stuff from scratch, don't you? If you really want that destructive, uh, deterministic destruction?
4: You probably do. You could, for example, write something that looked like a data set on the outside that implemented everything data set it implements, but that managed the memory itself, and that exposed a dispose method that actually genuinely freed the memory.
2: Well, there you go. There's um, a project for you, Kate.
4: <laughs> <laughs> In my copious free time. <laughs> yeah,
2: sure. I'm sure somebody's done that kind of stuff already.
4: Yes. Uh, I know a guy who wrote something that made a, an ADO record set look like a data set. Wow. Yeah, which considering that one's a bucket and the other is a hose is is really strange thing to kind do, strange. but he did. Because he had a business layer that gave you back an ADO record set and he was doing some sort of temporary crutchy type migration and he didn't want to touch his business layer, but he wanted to write an uh, ASP.NET front end that wanted a, a data set. So hmm. uh, that's what he wrote. And, and that's the sort of thing you can do in C++ because it understands both types. So if you want to write in c then you know what a data set is, but you don't know what an ADO record set is because you don't ha- you can't read the header files and so on. Mm-hmm. And if you want to write in old-style C++, then it knows it can read a header file, but it doesn't know what the base class libraries are and doesn't know about anything of the .NET framework. And if you sit in C++ CLI, you can just mix them and match them. So you know, I have a demo app that exposes a generic collection to a C-sharp program, and the c for each is through this collection. But under the covers, the collection is actually implemented with templates, uh, which is higher performing and, uh, and was easy to write, too, if you're not scared of the STL. Um, so it's just mixing and matching, and, and that's going to be the kind of place, I think, that C++ is going to sit. So if somebody wants, you know, a WinForms app with a grid and three buttons and a drop-down box and a calendar picker, there's no compelling reason to write that in C++ instead of in C or VB. Yeah. Um, but when you start to talk about a back-end that's maybe using some existing libraries and it's got some time-sensitive calculations, then all of a sudden you start saying, I want to leave my back-end and see
2: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at
0: www.devexpress.com. You make a really strong case for C as the glue for interoperability.
3: Yes, yes.
0: Just C++ because it can speak CLI all, it speaks all the different platforms, so yeah. it's okay with that. Exactly. But with great power comes great responsibility.
4: It, you don't just shoot your foot off; <laughs> you can shoot your whole leg off.
0: Well, it, it, it's certainly the weapon that can of choice, right? If you're into blowing your foot off, this is the way. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Why stop at a foot, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. If C had a motto, it would be, it's your foot. Yeah.
0: Do what you want to <laughs> do.
4: Like, if you want to cast, you know, a string to an integer and then back to a date and blah, blah, as long as you cast it, you know, with the little roundy brackets so that you say you're doing it on purpose, C is like, okay.
0: All on right, your I'll head. do it. Okay, do. And if you then want to reference that as a pointer,
4: okay. Yeah, that's right. Then add three to it and try again. Sure. No problem. Yeah, you might have to put the odd little cast in to say, no, I totally mean this, you know? (laughs) No, really. I know what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah, never program plus Drunk. (laughs) Yes,
2: no. (laughs) Have you seen those Apple ads? I mean, I'm getting back to the UAC thing now, but have you seen the Apple ads?
4: I've seen some of them.
2: Yeah, pretty funny, actually. You know, the one where the guy's... uh, Basically, the Mac guy is talking to him, and he's got a Secret Service agent who's being his UAC agent. Macintosh is talking. Allow?
0: Deny. Allow? Very funny. Oh, man. We were talking briefly before the show on uh, the sort of future of programming languages, and I know you'd seen that Channel 9 episode where a bunch of the really big brains Anders and Eric Meyer and and uh, Herb Sutter were uh, talking about uh, where these languages are going and how I think it sort of ties into the original comment of C++ is new and fresh again.
4: Absolutely, you know they are spending a lot of time and effort thinking about what the next big problem is going to be. Um, and these are guys who I think they've had to have the doors enlarged over there so their heads will fit through them. I mean, they're huge brains.
0: They are smart.
4: And they're saying you know, what's the next huge hunk of pain? And, you know, what Herb's been talking about now for a year or two is the concurrency pain.
0: Yeah. Uh, and it's because we're how, kind of you know,
4: done in terms of what one chip can do.
0: Well, and it, we've all got multiple chips now. Yep. And and for a data guy like me, who's dealt with concurrency forever, I'm like, <laughs> welcome, like welcome to my, to world, my boys world, boys and girls. Right? <laughs> <laughs>
4: This is my favorite debugging question for people with multiple chips. It's like, why is my machine pegged at 50% CPU?
0: Hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait till you have a quad core and you're pegged at 25%. <laughs> quad. Right. How about I an 80 core?
4: 4.5%. I don't know why. <laughs> how
0: about an 80 core? Did you see
2: that? Yeah. Uh, From Intel, 80 oh. cores. It's yeah. going
4: gonna, gonna to be normal. You know, and, and if you've got, like, a little single-threaded app that's sitting there using up, you know, 2% of what the machine has to offer, uh, you're going to look like a slow app. But threading is hard, man. And, we don't, you know, the whole point of the .NET framework was we decided that you could no longer trust programmers to manage memory. Right? Yes. Like, you, you can go around telling people that they should delete what they created and so forth until your head falls off and... They just It's just like telling people they should write apps that don't require you to be admin. You can tell them all you like. Yeah. The .NET framework said, you know what, I'm going to manage memory because all these bugs are coming from memory corruption and, and dangling pointers and, and memory leaks and so forth and so on. Um, you can't have this gun anymore. I'm dealing with this for you.
0: That's the last foot you're
4: shooting. <laughs> that's <right>. It might <laughs> exactly. be your foot, but there's nothing left. <laughs> <laughs> you're out of feet. I'm taking over. So um it be that way with concurrency. A bunch of people running around with threads and locks and trying to memorize rules like never call anybody else's code while you hold a lock. Yeah. Ugh, that's just not gonna work. Yeah, you know? You, so you
0: text deadlocks.
4: Woohoo. <laughs> So um, there's a lot of thought going on. Well, how can something help you, and what should something be? Should it be the language? Should it be the compiler? Should it be the frameworks, the libraries, the operating system? And different people have different opinions about what the something should be that would help you manage concurrency and write um, ultra-multi-threaded applications Um, Herb has this great slide, which I've stolen for some of my own talks, where he says, you know, you've got sort of a single-threaded app with one thread, and then you've got an app that knows how to do explicitly, let's say, three threads. Right. And it does them at very specific times when it happens to feel that something slow is going to go on. And then you have this concept of a sea of work items, and some, like threading fairy, figures out for you whether that should be 16 threads or 32 or 80 or whatever, And you just sort of write your program. Yeah. And bizarre as that sounds, some of that is live today. Threading varies? Well, in C++, there's a pragma that you can put before a loop that basically says, um, this whole loop is independent. Go ahead and divide it amongst the CPUs however you like. Hmm. And so if you've got some loop that's going to do something for 1 to 1,000, and you've got four chips, one to two hundred and fifty will happen on one chip, and two hundred and fifty one to five hundred on another, and so on.
2: Hey, that's pretty and cool.
4: That's something called OMP. Uh, I think it stands for Open Multi but it could be wrong. And that's there in the in the two thousand and five version of the tool that's shipping today.
2: Hey, Kate, give us uh, give us non threading wannabes, uh, sort of. Uh... An overview of some of the tools that we have. I mean, you know, when I'm writing code and I'm doing multi-threaded code, how do I know whether uh, a plain old lock is going to work or should I move up to a mutex,
4: you know? Uh, Yeah, and a lot of this is language-specific, and a lot of times you don't know. That's the actually scary part about, about doing threading work, that when you test it, it works. And then even if you test it with two users at once and it works and you think, great, this is fantastic. Um, and then it could still fall down when you put it out um, yeah. into production. And, and choosing your lock object, like, you know, should I have a critical section? Should I have a mutex? Um, that That's part of it. But the, the bigger problem is that people's locks are either way too large or way too small. Right. That, that turns out to be... Uh, What you spend most, when I do mentoring work and I come in and people say, you know, this app is running into deadlock and I don't understand, it'll turn out they're not locking a big enough um, section of the code so that Mm. something else is coming in and changing a variable that is in fact shared and breaking stuff. Because that's that's the idea, the... Uh, If you've got some line of code that changes your bank balance and uh, you're in the middle of calculating the new bank balance and you lose your turn Mm. and another thread comes in and changes the value of balance underneath you. And then when you get your turn again, you overwrite the new value with the temporary you were calculating or something. Classic
2: threading problem there.
4: Yeah. So, um, you know, your lock wasn't big enough. Someone else was able to execute some other function that touched balance. And then other times your lock is too big and uh, you get into deadlock where no threads can move because they're all waiting for each other to let go of their individual locks. So um, I actually went to a talk, which was an hour long, and all it was was brain-hurting rules for for safe threading programming. Um, and, And some of them are almost impossible, like literally never call anyone else's code while you hold a lock because they might get another lock, and therefore deadlock is possible. But, you know, anyone else's code means, for example, the whole framework.
0: Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Windows, you mean?
2: <laughs> right. I mean, you. at some point, you just have to take a chance and say, well, the chances of this happening
4: are small. The chan- so the chance is the word that comes up over and over again. You say, I have a good probabilistic certainty. Right. I'm about 88% that my app is good, you know?
3: Yeah. You
4: can't get to 100 because you can't test every combination. Right. And... Uh, that's just, that's it's just a, not for mortals. It's a little
2: existential, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you sort of give up at some point and go, you know, it's just not the certain, it's not the solid ground that I'm used to.
4: Exactly. You're used to yes or no, true or false. That's you know, right. I hit F5, nothing blew up, so I'm good.
2: It starts here, it ends here, and, it, uh, and it's done. It,
4: yeah. And instead you get what Herb
0: calls probabilistic comfort. Probabilistic. I love it. <laughs>
4: are you with this
0: well it's funny because we were always answering our customers with i'm fairly sure this will work this should work (laughs) you never say it does work it should work work. well now we actually have a programming environment that should work yeah
4: yeah Yeah, it's just not where you want to be you know so so you need some tool to help you and i guess the good news is they're working on it the bad news is they're not done yet
2: now who what
4: lots and lots of days multiple teams within microsoft um, are trying so to make
2: threading easier? Is that what you're saying? Yeah.
4: Hmm. Um, so, you know, if you were going to solve it, how would you do it? I
2: don't know as if it's solvable because y- you either have to take a, a higher level approach, which is going to lead to inefficiencies, or you have to make it easier to get down lower, which just gives you more foot shooting fodder.
4: <laughs> you know? And that's probably a pretty good description of the various different things that people are trying. So there are people who want to change the language itself so that, for example, mm. you wouldn't just say that something was an integer, but you would say that it was a future integer. Oh, God. And and then the compiler would know that you can't use its value until it got, you know, its value will take a while to calculate kind of deal. And so the flow of control is not what we expect we all learned our languages assuming we learned the the same basic set of imperative languages that you start at line one and then line two and then line three unless you run into something like an if for a while or heaven forbid a go-to that disrupts the flow of control but people are talking about actually changing the language so that line one starts running and then line two starts running and then line four decides to wait until line one is finished because it needs the value
1: oh my head
2: hurts already
4: Yep. So then another set of people say, don't mess with the languages. That's the ground under people's feet. Really? I mean, no? yeah. Uh, give them a library and let them call, you know, like we do with web services, begin something or another, right? And then later when you actually want the value, you can call get or end the same something or another, and you'll get the value. Well, so, we, uh, have,
2: we have those things. I mean, with delegates, you can do that with anything. So, right. But the problem is when you have these non-atomic processes that are interact with each other, yes. that's where the problem is. I mean, if I'm just going to do something in the background, I can easily throw it in a background worker, and that's not a challenge.
4: That's not a challenge. But when every single line has the p- potential to go in the background, yes, and when the decision depends on how many cores you're running on, right, then the libraries, the, today's libraries can't really help us, and today's operating systems can't really help
2: us. It's really going to be uh, the problem of the future. I mean, 88 cores, or 80... Come on. Yeah,
4: Yeah. You're going to look like an idiot if you're using one and letting 79. Yes, you are. Yep. And so you've got to do it. And and the thing is too, you know, um, apps have been magically getting faster while getting slower for a real long time. You know, if you've got an old enough machine kicking around, if you've got like a four-year-old machine and you try to run, say Visual Studio 2005 on it, you go like, Oh, this is really slow, but it doesn't feel slow on my usual machine. Um, And that, uh, miracle has stopped because the, yeah, the
0: processors aren't getting faster anymore. No
4: more faster processors. Speed of light. We're screwed.
0: <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt, Kate.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I got a story for you, and and this was um, I won't say who it was, but a very famous rock and roll legend called me, and this is the true story, and. He was in California, and he had a friend in England, and he wanted to collaborate with his friend in England in real time, audio and video. Okay? Now, we all know that audio and video sent over the internet, uh, there's a delay. Yeah. If you take one bit and you send it through a fiber optic cable, the speed of light from California to uh London there's going to be a delay
4: right it's like 10,000 miles or something exactly
2: it's going to be a second or so and a bit at the fastest that bits can travel right so I'm trying to explain this to him, and he's going, no, 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 you're wrong.
4: <laughs> if you really cared, Carl, you'd adjust the speed of light for him. Well,
2: you know, there's this new technology that's coming out, and I'm like, look, technology, schmology, let's go down to fundamentals here. You cannot change the speed of light. <laughs> he was still, he's still convinced that he can do it.
4: He can probably get venture funding for it.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
4: And oh, oh well. man, but that you know, and that's the deal with chips. Apparently, if you take the size of a CPU chip and do how long does it take light to get across it, and that's some number of seconds, and then you sort of invert that to get hertz. That's about the speed we're at right now. Hmm. So we're done. We're done. Yeah. yeah. So you got to go. You got to go to multi-chips. It means you got to go to multi-threading, and multi-threading is too hard. So some people with enormous brains have to help us out, and uh, uh, and when they do. Uh, some people you know, it's it's not gonna be as easy as it should be on the first pass. And I think it's that's it actually fits well with what we're talking about with Vista. You know, the, the simple twenty one step process for adding a manifest to a C sharp application hmm. in an in a year or two, that's going to be a case of clicking a little box that says, I want a manifest. There's probably gonna be a property somewhere where you say, you know, what Vista execution level you want and the tool will build you your manifest and people won't remember the pain that, that early adopters went through. And so the same thing with concurrency. Early adopters go into a lot of pain right now. They'll go through less pain when when the tools start to appear. But eventually well, that's it'll be the easier. norm for
0: Microsoft, right? We've always had new tools make that easier. Yes.
4: This hurts. Make it stop. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the the shift in language I, I argue that we're at one of the times where we're the most robust uh, imperative languages yet. And the first generation of, of dynamic, or even maybe the second generation of dynamic languages are already out there. They're just not all that good yet. And it seems like we're starting to swing the other way again.
4: Well, I think a lot of people are, it's always greener on the other side of the fence. So they see something that's easy in, in a language that's fundamentally different from the language they use. And they say, gosh, I might even be able to stand my language being fundamentally different if I could do that over there easily, you know? um but then ironically they squawk like hell if you change one little tiny thing about their language
0: <laughs> right well and they forget all the things their language does well right. because that was yesterday's problem
2: yeah. i also i also see a huge taking for granted the stability of you know operating systems like windows xp professional and how long it took to get there on one vector and now the vector has completely changed And uh, you know we're still comparing it to XP Pro, you know where you know just relying on the GPU is a huge risk because sometimes the drivers work and sometimes they don't. You know what I mean?
4: Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, nothing comes for free. So if you say we were ignoring the whole ability of the graphics, uh, you know, screen card to help us out here with what needs to be done, let's start asking it to help us out. And then, like you say, if the drivers aren't there, the whole thing is it's less yeah. self sufficient, right? You're suddenly you're depending on vendors.
2: Now the benefit is, of course, it's faster than XP mm-hmm. pro. It really is. I mean Vista is smoking fast.
4: Yeah. Especially considering what it's doing, right? I mean, taking the same speed to do to do more is is, is definitely faster. And I find Vista faster in everything. Yeah. Um, except deleting files.
2: Oh, and moving files. What is calculating, <laughs> calculating time, time? remaining? For, oh, my God. What the hell? Don't calculate. What, you need to th- what are you
4: thinking about? <laughs> Jeez, come on. <laughs> like, spend 45 seconds saying, let, let, give me a minute. Let me tell you how long this is going to take.
0: And it's still wrong. Microsoft time is still Microsoft time. Yeah, I want an option that says, I don't care how long it's going to take. Just do it. <laughs> I don't want you to calculate anything. What are the possibilities? I'm going to say no when you tell me how That's long. That's right. Time
4: take. remaining: one second. Hurry up! Quick yeah.
0: Cancel. Oh, sorry, out of time because I spent it all calculating how much time it's going to
2: take. <laughs> <laughs> what is up with that?
4: That that is totally. I'm waiting for a service pack on that one. That one's insane. But if you don't ever delete any files, yeah, uh, especially don't delete shortcuts because they are zero length and therefore impossible to calculate how long they'll take to delete. Oh
2: man, that'll throw into a tizzy. But you know, as long as we're complaining here, there's another problem that's going on that we're trying to figure out with, with office, right? Yes. With office uh, sort of locking up and in particular outlook, uh, accessing pop three accounts seems to just lock up.
4: And Um, this is strictly rumor for me because I um, have been sufficiently scared off at the thought of losing lookout which mm. I couldn't live without. Uh, that I've kept my my mail in to, in Outlook two thousand
3: and three. Yeah, I just
4: love Lookout, and people are telling me, "Oh no, it's just as good with the with the Vista Search." And the Vista Search, I mean, it rocks. I love it. Yeah, me too. But the thought of trusting it to search my mail. My main PST is constantly bumping up against a two gig limit. Mm. I just don't want to let go of Lookout, so I stayed on on two thousand and three, and now I'm hearing this constant parade of complaints from friends about the speed of Outlook 2007 and I feel a little like oh maybe yeah. I did the right thing.
0: <laughs> and the thing is there's so much nice there's about some Outlook 2007. Stuff. Stuff. The new uh you know schedule oh, bar yeah. and I mean it's a it's a wonderful uh a version of Outlook except for some of
2: this plus integration. So so we're helping uh, the RDs are helping Microsoft out um with RePro and and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, if you know I if I if I had a company like Microsoft, I would start an RD program, no doubt about it, because <laughs> we we rock. You know, we help out in so many ways that 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 uh, they just couldn't get otherwise.
4: Absolutely, and you know, once once you kind of know the names of all the RDs, you start. Spotting patterns. So I was looking at the Tech Ed uh, pre con list, uh, you know, for my own selfish purposes because of being on it. And uh, boy, oh boy, it's just RD studded, you know. And, and I tend to see these things once you know who everybody is. Uh, these are the people who show up. They're, they're, we become the usual suspects.
2: Hey, Kate, last thing I want to talk about uh, for the first time in history, a woman won the Turing Award for computing. <laughs> And I saw this, and I sent it to you, and I think Julie yes. and Michelle and, uh, uh, you know, the .NET babes. So what do you think?
4: I, I, I really Allen. thought we were done on the first woman who X, for pretty much any value of X. Yeah. Um, it, it blows me away that there's still giant categories that you can still say, you can still be the first woman to whatever.
0: It's really embarrassing, it embarrassing, actually. How can it be that this is the first time? Yeah.
4: Well, uh, Larry O'Brien's comment was, Grace Hopper never won a tour Yeah, award. I saw
0: that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I
4: guess we should be glad that there isn't like, you know, like a ladies auxiliary to the ACM and, you know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> we can oh. make the sandwiches while the men wrote the program. Oh, yeah. no.
0: Come on. <laughs> no, no. Don't go there. <laughs>
4: It can be inspiring, you know, because clearly there's some category out there or another that I can have a chance to be the first woman who wins it. So what the hell?
2: And, you know, uh, interestingly enough, and coincidentally, she won her Turing Award for the development of of tran parallel translation, which is a specific method for running a program over multiple processors to improve speed huh. and efficiency. <laughs> What's up with that? Quinky dink. <laughs> yeah. Ah, Yeah, pretty cool. There must be something in the the female genius brain that's all about parallel stuff.
0: I don't know.
4: Men whine to me that women are better at multitasking than men are.
0: Well, there you go. Some more evidence of it. So speaking of tech ed and RDs, it's you and Tim Huckabee collaborating. It is.
4: That's going to be such a blast. That's
0: going to be something. That's for sure. I think I want to watch that. Absolutely.
4: Tim has the world's greatest uh, Avalon demo.
0: Yeah, the Scripps app. Yep. Yeah,
4: and and you know, when he when he stands up and says, you know, we're going to cure cancer using Windows Presentation Foundation, people listen.
3: Yeah, yeah.
4: <laughs> and awesome. so I'm just going to sit there and bask in the Tim Glow all day and hopefully, <laughs>
3: hopefully
4: yeah. have a great time and, and teach people um, what, what they need to know because programming for Vista is a little different than programming for XP. You know, you, you need to understand UAC, but also you, those 7,000 thingies. You know, they're, they're waiting at your feet, and all you have to do is call them. But uh, well, we probably won't cover all 7,000 in, in six or seven hours, but um, get people hooked into everything that Vista has to, to offer programmers. You know, calling the search yourself, that kind of stuff.
2: Excellent. Well, uh, and just before we wrap up, I just want to mention the shrinkster.com link for that article about Francis Allen. Uh, it's at shrinkster.com slash MFP. Well, there you go, Kate excellent another great hour wasted
3: thanks,
2: <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks <music> is recorded and produced by QuAP Productions providing professional audio audio mastering video post production and podcasting services at www.dotnetrocks.com